Hello, and welcome to the Toxpod. I'm Peter Stockham. Today on the Toxpod, we have with us Dr. Richard Bay. He's a research fellow at University of South Australia. Uh, welcome to the Toxpod, Richard. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be involved in uh, your podcast. So, Richard, you've been working in the area of wastewater epidemiology for quite a while now, both here in Australia and overseas. Tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I'm originally from New Zealand. I did my uh, undergraduate degrees at the University of Auckland, and I did my master's in Europe, in uh, Germany and Finland. Liked it so much over there, I wanted to stay and uh, got involved in uh, wastewater-based epidemiology almost from the get-go over there. So I started my PhD in Spain almost 10 years ago and uh, moved here to Australia once I finished my PhD in uh, 2017. I've been here ever since. So specifically, you're interested in the area of drugs detected in wastewater or sewage. Uh, so why would uh, why would you want to look for drugs in sewage? How does it help? Well, my work is primarily relating to uh, illicit drugs, uh, more recently uh, new psychoactive substances. So the reason we look uh, for these compounds in wastewater is that it provides uh, population scale information on human activity. So within the, uh, the catchment boundaries, so within the boundaries of the wastewater treatment plant of a community. Um, so we're looking at really community harm relating to illicit drug use. So we're coming from more like a public health standpoint. So it's less about uh, looking for specific areas within an area. It's, it's a very generalised survey of what drugs might be available in that yeah, community. Yeah, exactly. So this, we're, it's completely non-invasive. So we're looking at wastewater from a community. So we don't know who has been taking any of these drugs or where in a community these may have been done. So we can look... It depends how many treatment plants there are within a city. So, for example, um, in South Australia, there are four treatment plants within uh, Adelaide. And so we can say within quite a large city, there are users of various illicit drugs. We don't know where. Yeah, so it's very anonymous and it gives you general information. Yes. We should disclose we have done a bit of work together, you and I, Richard. Uh, uh, yeah. We, yeah, we've uh, published a paper or two in largely looking at NPS and trying to link up novel psychoactive substances in wastewater and also relate that to forensic data, uh, reasonably successful. But the interesting thing for me is our fields overlap quite a bit. We've got a lot in common in terms of the drugs that we're looking for. So I think it's pretty useful for forensic toxicologists and people in your field to get together. Yeah. Does that happen much? Strangely enough, not until I arrived here and started working with uh, you guys over at uh, Forensics. But having done that, I think it's a it's of great value to, to both us and also uh, you guys as well. I mean, we found that um, that database, the high res NPS uh, mass spectral database that was developed by Tox groups. I mean, I use it all the time for some of my work. Yeah, sharing standards is is the key to it, isn't it? Yeah, especially for the compounds. I mean, you have so many NPS that are so expensive to purchase to be able to share them rather than purchasing your own standards. It's, it's a great help. So. Um... Drugs and wastewater has been around for a little while. It's currently underway in many centres in Europe as well, I understand. Yeah, so uh, actually started in uh, Europe. So initially it was uh, theorised uh, in 2001, so early 2000s, but it was first put into practice in uh, mid-2005 in Italy, looking at cocaine and uh, its metabolite benzoylecanine. This then expanded into other illicit drugs such as MDMA, methamphetamine, amphetamine, uh, heroin and cannabis as well. So primarily it has been in Europe, but it has expanded around the world uh, to Australia, to Asia, uh, North America and uh, Africa and uh, South America as well. 
So how are the how are the results expressed when you find some drugs in wastewater? You have to try to link it back to the number of people in the population, I guess, is that how it works? Yeah, so we normally look at uh, mass loads in terms of uh, milligrams per day per thousand people. So I'd say the main aspect of wastewater-based epidemiology that we really need to focus on is the flow rates from uh, the treatment plants that we get. Because if we have an open system, so if they're not closed sewer systems, large rain events can have an impact on flow rates and then cause a dilution effect. And so for that reason, we look at uh, daily loads or mass loads. This makes it uh, a bit easier to understand from an analytical chemistry point of view, but it makes it a bit uh, more difficult to compare drugs because, uh, for example, if you have like two milligrams per day per thousand people of fentanyl, if you just see the two, you think, oh, that's not too bad. But if you take into account the dose size, which is very small for fentanyl, which is like 0.2 milligrams or so, then in the end it gives you 10 doses but on the other hand, if you see a mass load of 200 milligrams per day per thousand people, it may sound quite large, but for other compounds such as uh, ecstasy, the dose size may be a lot higher. So like 100 milligrams, and that gives you only two doses per day. So sometimes we can transform these mass loads to doses per day, just depending on who wants to utilize the information. But uh, the other critical aspect is that the population itself. Uh, that we use. So generally we use uh, census data. So depending on the city or towns that we're monitoring, we can use census data if it's available. If not, uh, we get information from the treatment plants themselves, either in terms of the design capacity or the hydrochemical properties that they look at. There have also been other methods to try to um, utilize other, say, endogenous compounds within wastewater, such as neurotransmitter metabolites, uh, to better estimate the population. So those things like the neurotransmitters are a way to sort of normalise the data so it can yeah. take into account only sort of relative to the number of humans that are present, not relative yeah. to the, the volume that's coming in from industry and and rainwater, yeah. et cetera. Exactly. We're trying to look more for the human activity rather than having anything else that's influencing uh, what we're seeing. So could you use something like caffeine, for example? Well, potentially, but... Uh... To have a population normalizing fact, you want something that's utilizable internationally as well. And they found to be communities where people use less caffeine or more caffeine. So then you can't really use this widely. Yeah. So it's a drug. You can't really use another drug to, yeah. to normalize drugs. Yeah, so you're looking for endogenous compounds. So has that been successful? Um, well, we've just uh, managed to make a method on some neurotransmitter metabolites. And we used this to normalize across uh, a week and got reasonable results. Now we're just trying to apply it to a larger uh, sample size to see how well it works across different uh, treatment plants in different communities and cities. Okay, so that's a bit of a step forward, I think. Yeah. So the drugs are being excreted by humans, so they've obviously been uh, metabolized to some extent. Do you actually look for the parent drugs or do you look for various metabolites? Uh, look for both, actually. So it depends on how much of the drug is excreted. So we generally use uh, fungokinetic studies to determine what we should be looking at. So either the parent compound, for example, methamphetamine, we generally look at the parent compound, but and MDMA as well. But for other compounds such as cocaine, we look at uh, benzodiazepines that is primarily excreted as the metabolite rather than the uh, parent compound itself. Or even cocaine's pretty unstable in the aqueous environment as well, so you'd think it would break down in the sewage environment. Yeah, exactly. What about the glucuronides? We generally don't look at glucuronides. They're generally hydrolyzed in sewer by uh, fecal bacteria and other bacteria that are in there, so we can't normally see them at all. 
That's quite handy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Obviously, one of the major drugs we use in society is alcohol. Do you monitor any alcohol or metabolites? No, uh, yeah, we look at uh, ethyl sulfate. First introduced, I think, by a Norwegian group um, a few years ago, and everyone's been utilizing that method. Because alcohol is so abundant in society, it's just a very simple direct injection method, and it's actually one of the more promising WBE methods that are currently around. So one of the more reliable methods. More, yeah, more reliable, yeah. Getting back to the beginning of the process, how do you take the samples? We generally use uh, auto-samplers at the wastewater treatment plants. So generally large treatment plants would have auto-samplers already there. So they can use uh, these to collect time or flow proportional samples across the day. So then that gives us a 24-hour composite sample, which allows us to have like a daily snapshot of uh, community consumption. But there are also uh, smaller places that may not have these auto-samplers. And in those cases, we'll have to use a grab sampling. So just grab a bottle, get some wastewater, and then try to analyze that. But of course, when you don't have this uh, proportional sampling and just to grab something, we can't really quantify anything. We just get um, concentrations of really qualitatively say what is present and what is not. Okay, so with the automated sampler, it sort of just takes a bit of the wastewater stream over a certain period every few minutes or something like that. Yeah, so it so gives you a representative sample. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it could just take the sample, say, every 15 minutes or so, and then by the end of the day, you can combine that and take... 600 mils or something that's okay. what we generally use. So 600 mils of sample and you extract all of that, would you? Uh, not all of it. So it depends on what the method you use. So some people use direct injection where you don't really need to concentrate anything. So for the more prevalent compounds, you don't necessarily need to concentrate anything. But uh, we use uh, solid phase extraction where we use about 100 milliliters, concentrate it down and end up with about 100 microliters. So that's about a thousand fold concentration. So in that case, we're able to see these, uh, say, less prevalent compounds at far lower concentrations, such as the low-dose pharmaceuticals and also their NPS as well. What's uh, what's the actual sample like? Is it It's largely water, I imagine. Oh, it's a horrible matrix. I mean, um, it's, it's not purely aqueous. I mean, as you can imagine, it has a lot of suspended solids and other particulates. Uh, still present. So, so we get the sample, say, before they do any treatment at all at the treatment plant, they might have some big sieve thing to get rid of the large solids, but there's still some solid particulates available. So we get this very raw, influent uh, wastewater, which will then be processed at the lab. Depending on the analyze of interest, sometimes you have to add a preservative to help with the stability of the compounds, such as uh, acid. So you can certify the pH2 to help the stability of some um, drugs such as uh, the amphetamines. Or alternatively, you could use um, sodium metabisulfite, which has been used for 6-MAM for the, the heroin metabolite. Also for some uh, non-polar or more lipophilic compounds like the cannabinoids, especially uh, THC acid. Uh, sometimes you need the particulates because they're bound to these. So for the cannabinoids, sometimes you have a separate method than for the more polar or the other polar drugs. So for the cannabinoids, you don't filter them. We just centrifuge into like a liquid-liquid extraction method. But for the other commas, we generally filter them because there shouldn't be anything adhered to either the filter paper or the solid particulates because they're so polar they can, uh, they're just in the aqueous phase. Yeah. Now, the other common thing between our fields is the microbial environment. So in postmodern toxicology, 
the main microbes involved are actually from the gastrointestinal tract. And they're the ones that get into the blood and degrade the body and also degrade some drugs. So I imagine it's similar in wastewater studies where the drugs can get degraded by bacteria. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So generally, well, I said before, we generally look at parent compounds and look at pharmacokinetic studies to know what to look for. But of course, there are other degradants that can occur just in wastewater. So aside from what you may find in pharmacokinetic clinical studies, there's been a lot of work done on stability of these compounds in sewer and also just in wastewater itself. So either in the lab or just in sewer experiments to see what is formed and to know what we should be looking for in the sewer. Perhaps the parent drug is not the most suitable biomarker for our work. Perhaps we need to look at other degradants. So for example, with the benzodiazepines, you might be looking for the seven amino derivatives. Yeah. Yeah. So we are, are looking for those for our benzodiazepine method. It's a bit more difficult to include within the parent drugs as well, but uh, we're trying to improve our methods for benzodiazepines as well. So in Europe, there's um, quite a bit of variation, even though it's pretty small geographically, but politically it's divided up a little bit. There's a large variation between where some countries use a lot of meth, other countries use a lot of cocaine and MDMA. And these sort of wastewater studies really bring that to the front, don't they? Yeah, um, that's part of the uh, SCORE networks of the Sewage Core Group Europe. Do a lot of work looking at uh, different countries on the world, having this uh, interlab comparison to ensure that all our methods are up to scratch. And then they uh, utilize that into a EMCDDA publication, which uh, is released every year or two. And I think the most recent one was last year, and there that you can clearly see that uh, methamphetamine used at least in uh, Europe is generally on the eastern side of the, the continent. Uh, cocaine use is more Mediterranean and perhaps the UK as well, and then amphetamine sort of in Scandinavia. So okay. as you were saying, even though it's quite a small land mass, there's a lot of uh, difference in drug use. So within Australia, there's quite a big study going on that you're involved with, looking at different centres around the country. Have you noticed any different trends between different cities? Yeah, so you're referring to the National Wastewater Drug Monitoring Program uh, that we do in collaboration with uh, the University of Queensland. So we've been looking at sites around Australia since 2016. So every two months, uh, grabbing samples uh, from the capital cities around the country and every four months from uh, the regional sites. The main drug in Australia is uh, methamphetamine. We've been seeing across all states that it's been increasing and decreasing without any real reason, perhaps associated with uh, um, seizures that uh, police may have done. But the main difference that you can see is that, say, on the eastern side of the country, you see more cocaine use compared to uh, the western or central parts of Australia. And what about MDMA? Is that coming back or what's um, happening? It's quite low usage compared to international studies. But again, it's mostly based on the, the eastern side of the country. So you're also looking, your, your projects were involved with looking for NPS in wastewater. Ah, uh, yes. Now, I would imagine NPS are very low dose and it would be very difficult to detect. Yeah, uh, extremely low dose. And also because of the uh, number of potential uh, consumers of these compounds, it's quite difficult to find. So that's why we use such a, a large concentration uh, step for the SPUs, we have a thousand-fold concentration, which is quite a lot larger than what you generally use, but it allows us to have a higher chance of finding these NPS. And do you look for specific novel soccer active substances, or do you 
look for all, all as many as you can? A bit of both, actually. So we have a targeted method for about 25, 30 uh, NPS. So these cover synthetic cannabinoids, some fentanyl derivatives, as well as, say, uh, methoxetamine. And uh, for those, we have a targeted method because based on the literature and other research done, we found that they're more likely to be found. But we also have a screening method that we use for our uh, TOF system, where we have, I think, about 300 compounds in a database that we then screen for. And these cover not just uh, the compounds, as I said before, but also, uh, say, cannabinoids as well. Cannabinoids are very difficult to, to find at the moment, but we're slowly making our way there in terms so of improving methods. So that's uh, synthetic cannabinoids. Uh, yeah, yes, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Well, they're difficult enough in blood, so, yeah, I can imagine. So you're involved in an international project where you're looking at uh, wastewater samples from around the world searching for NPS. How do you manage that? It was actually quite difficult to start off with. So um, a few uh, collaborators that, that I wrote to last year to ask if they wanted to be involved in this uh, international uh, investigation of NPS, and luckily enough, they all said yes. And I thought, oh, great. And I thought everything was set from there. But it's actually very difficult to get wastewater samples into Australia because of the strict quarantine regulations that we have. But we're able to receive chemical extracts a bit easier, although this still requires approval from uh, the quarantine and the Department of Agriculture as well, as well as a lot of uh, paperwork uh, <laughs> through uh, career companies as well as uh, the universities. But now we actually have a quarantine approved premises at the university so we can a bit more easily receive international samples. But having said all that, I, I think it was worth it because we were able to look at international samples. I think we had 10 countries involved and we were able to find a few NPS in there as well. That's very exciting. So obviously the, the samples are highly contaminated with bacteria. They can't just import all these pathogens into our into our country, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you said you had found some results. Have they published any of those findings uh, yet? Not yet. Okay. So, yeah. Can't really talk about them yet? No, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> just throw it out there that keep an eye out. <laughs> so as well as uh, general wastewater epidemiology, there's also studies around looking at music festivals and things like that. Have been involved in any of those sort of studies? We did a small study last year, but uh, we didn't know anything about Portaloo samples and how different they would be from wastewater. And it turns out that the, the, the blue stuff that they add to these portable toilets to, to help with the smell doesn't really help with uh, trying to extract the compounds from the, the liquid. Uh, so we didn't actually find much at all. But uh, that's uh, future work that we'd also like to, to get involved with. So let's get a little bit more into your analytical methods that you're using. You, you use um, LCMS triple quads, that sort of thing? Yeah. So we use uh, LCMS triple quad for targeted quantitative studies as well as uh, LC Hires MS. So what well, we use at TOF, but a lot of other groups can use at Orbitraps as well for the more qualitative analysis. And you were the high-res mass spec data. Do you acquire that in as a auto MSMS type arrangement? Yeah, so we have a uh, SIAC system. So we use a SWATH acquisition. Right. Uh, so it gives us a huge amount of information that we can then uh, retrospectively analyze as well for anything. So even a TOF is sensitive enough for things like NPS? Uh, yeah, well, we're finding that it is. I think it's more to do with the uh, sample preparation steps where we're able to concentrate so much that we are able to see it within the TOF. 
Um, we have compared our TOF sensitivity with the triple quote, and while it is not as sensitive, it still gives uh, reasonable uh, sensitivities. So we are still able to find uh, NPS with that. So you're using SPE to clean up your matrix. That obviously does a very good job because the matrix that you're looking at is going to be full of soaps, detergents, oils, perhaps. So do you get much um, iron suppression happening? Yeah, so we get a a lot of uh, matrix effects from all the other contaminants within uh, the wastewater themselves. So to cater for that, we, especially in these uh, quantitative methods, use uh, internal standards, so the deuterated analogs to try to uh, correct for these matrix effects. So if we don't, then matrix suppression is massive. You have like, you only see say 30% of the compounds. You have a lot of matrix suppression depending on the compound. It's definitely a challenging matrix that you're having to work with. Yes. So the forensic and, well, it depends on which part of the world you're in, but the mass spectral identification of compounds and confirmation sort of is a little bit different uh, depending on the field you're in. How does that work in your field? Well, so in terms of the uh, high-resolution mass spec? Yeah, so if you wanted to identify a compound as definitely being there, what are the criteria that they use? Okay, so we have uh, different criteria, say, depending on how confident you are that something is indeed there. So you can say if you just have the exact mass and a retention time, because maybe you have a standard, perhaps you've predicted the retention time, you can say that the compound is detected. If you have the accurate mass plus a fragment iron, then you can have a bit more confidence that the compound is indeed there. So generally I'd use three ions, so two fragment ions and the parent ion itself uh, at accurate mass within say two millidaltons to confirm that is there and that's with respect to a standard. If you don't have the standard then even if you had all those criteria you can just say it's tentative. So you mentioned uh Retention time prediction. So this is uh, where you don't have an authentic standard, but you know the structure of a compound and maybe what fragments you might expect. How does retention time prediction work? Yeah, well, I did quite a bit of work of retention time prediction uh, during my PhD, where we looked at uh, the smiles codes of compounds to try to elucidate uh, information on the, the compound itself. So we've got a lot of uh, compound-specific parameters that we're then able to upload into uh, machine learning software. So for us, we used uh, artificial neural networks, but of course there are other uh, machine learning uh, software that you can also use to predict retention times. We used ANNs to predict retention time based on, I think we had 500 standards. So not just illicit drugs, we had pesticides, pharmaceuticals, antibiotics, all that sort of stuff. And then we used that to try to predict the retention time of compounds that we found in wastewater, but, but did not have the standard for. Uh, it could be metabolites, transformation products, or um, indeed the, the parent compounds as well. It actually worked reasonably well. We got um, about 90% of our predictions within two minutes, and that's a 18-minute runtime. This is the sort of thing you'd use to say, uh, you know that the compound's going to be rather non-polar, so it shouldn't come out early. So you can sort of stop looking at it towards the beginning of the run, but just concentrate on looking for it at the end of the run. That's that's the approach. Yeah, exactly. So if you know what the exact mass is of a compound, but you don't have the standard for it, and you see a retention time at, say, 1.5 minutes, 6.5 minutes, and 17 minutes of a 20-minute run time, and if you predict a, a retention time of seven minutes, then you can almost guarantee it's the six-minute one. Right. So these models that you use, do they – 
use aspects of the smiles code yeah to so we can uh, yeah so there are the software available we can use the smiles code to then produce a lot of uh, compound specific parameters such as hydrogen bonds the uh, number of oxygens number of carbons the a lot of physical chemistry parameters then you can utilize that within different machine learning softwares to see which parameters are the most uh, needed or the most necessary or the best to predict the retention times so you can find thousands of uh, compound specific parameters but perhaps in the end you only need 10 and then you can use those 10 for future predictions Okay, thank you very much for joining us, Richard. Oh, good. Thank you for having me. And hopefully some toxicologists out there and maybe some wastewater epidemiologists are listening to this and they'll get together and perhaps share a few standards and make both of their lives easier. Thank you for listening. Registration is now open for the 61st annual TAFT meeting taking place from the 2nd to the 6th of September 2024 in St. Gallen, Switzerland. The early bird rate is only available until May 31st, so be sure to register soon for the reduced rate at www.tft2024.org. We look forward to welcoming you to St. Gallen for an inspiring, engaging and enlightening conference.